Welcome to the 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast, a retrospective. Hey folks, Brennan here. Thanks for tuning in to our 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast. If you want to reach out or follow us, we're on Facebook and YouTube as 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade, Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch as 25 Years of VTM, and on our website at 25yearsofvtm.com. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hey everyone, and welcome back to 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade presents Vampire the Requiem. And today's book that we're going to be reviewing is going to be Night Horrors the Wicked Dead. It's another Night Horrors book. I think we've done the previous one before, which is Immortal Sinners. Um, but not to stop there, I will be your host this evening and or today, depending on when you actually listen to this. Time is a construct, right? So it's, <laughs> it is I, DJ, and I have with me the lovely, lovely, lovely Mikael, Mike. What's up, y'all? How y'all doing? All right. Um, so that getting out of the way, I think this is a, an interesting book uh, to kind of go over because of the way it's kind of set up. It's not something that we're used to, at least from the stuff that we've kind of read before. And I know that we always say this all the time, but actually that's a pretty good sign, right? Because it goes to show that the content that we're reading is not the same thing that's being like regurgitated back and forth. Um, so I guess let's go into it. We have our, we have two intro stories we'd actually like to cover because this book is actually pretty good with having like these prologues into the next segment. But the two that caught our eye um, were definitely the first intro story, which I'll cover, and I, I guess I'll just go into it. So our first intro story actually talks about this maquette that we've seen before in the maquette book, Francis, if you remember, um, the one who's always following the shadow. And in this case, she's actually following this young aspiring artist, or I should say this chic woman who seems to be in art circles. And the reason I have to phrase it that way is because if we remember back in the maquette book, Francis had a specific type of prey that she went after, especially those that were full of themselves or really were into um, bringing light and or attention to themselves because she knew she wasn't getting the attention she was living. And so her preferred prey is someone who just draws attention to themselves. And she passively talks about her encounters regarding following this woman whose name is Lily that we come to find out in this art gallery. And as she follows Lily around, um, Lily makes a mad dash escape um, to kind of duck into another room while our Francis is kind of looking for her, deciding that that's going to be her prey this evening. Um, what she walks into is kind of interesting because the way it's kind of phrased is it seems like someone is currently feasting off of her, and she feels that someone had beat her to the punch when it comes to the meal. Um, what throws her off, though, is, believe it or not, Frances believes that this woman got pretty. She's not exactly sure how, but her features just became that much more defined and alluring to even Frances. And she goes, well, you know what, it's time for me to continue up this travel. And lo and behold, she'll wait another evening. She goes to look at her again, and now Lily is even thinner than she was before. Her features are even a little bit more exaggerated, with her eyes becoming a little more wider, and her cheeks becoming a little more sallow. But beautiful, nonetheless, by the standards that she sees as that. Um, it, a couple of days go by, and then she actually decides to go visit this Lily again. And in the process of doing so, she barges in about ready to go ahead and feast on her snack, only to find this creature, which is described as pudgy, rotting, uh, I'm not exactly <laughs> sure, compact, kind of like a critter that you probably saw in those 80s movies. Or how'd you put it, Mike? What was what was the other creature we, you, you decided to call it? It looked like a Golgothan shit demon. <laughs> <laughs> That's from the movie yes. Dogma, folks. If you've seen yes. that movie, 
if you, if you haven't paused now, go ahead and take a look at the at the clip just to have an idea of what we're talking about. But the image is is pretty spot on. Um, but what's interesting about it though is that France is meeting this Golgothan shit demon. Um, we're just going to call it that for now. Has her beast recoil, right? You wouldn't figure that's the case, but Francis is very well aware that what she's looking at is an actual vampire. She identifies it as a vampire. Whatever it is that she's looking at as well has a much more potent beast than she does. That Francis is going, you know what? This one's not for me. All you, buddy. You can go ahead and have it. And that kind of wraps up our first intro story. And Mike, you had some thoughts about this. Hit me with them. Yeah, so first I want to start with the positive because I really appreciate these authors, right? I don't I don't know what it is about Requiem, but they managed to get these people in here who write in a way that's super evocative. And the, the imagery is good. And you can kind of see the movie playing out in your mind when they tell their story. And it's great. Um, but with that said, there was there's something intangibly psychedelic about the way this particular story is written that makes it really weird and jarring when you get to the end and there's this super erotic scene going on between this person that our that our main character, like our audience perspective character, Francis, um, has been stalking around and it's like Francis recoiled at the encounter, but has never noticed this thing before. Um, maybe the thing doesn't stalk uh, the, the 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 same prey like out in public, right? Maybe it just lives somewhere in in Lily's house. Um, and it just it really knocked me back on my heels, right? To read it was like I mm, I think I just jumped into the wrong movie after what I was prepared. Uh, Beat up to, and the only reason I bring it up is because I'm sure you're about to get into what the book does, right? And so while the story mm-hmm. is really evocative and really well told, it doesn't seem to do the thing that the book is trying to do. I, I can I still haven't quite decided if that's a reasonable criticism. It's actually interesting you kind of place it that way because when you're reading it. If anything at all, that is a testament to the authors, right? Because you, much like Francis, are kind of shocked by what it is that you're encountering. Because up until this moment in time, most of us in the vampire history and or lore, regardless of whether it's Requiem or Masquerade, know that our vampires are the only vampires that usually come to the spotlight. So we only have an idea of this apex predator being like, well, this is my hunting ground. I'm kind of used to what I should be finding. In a worst case scenario, she might have confused it for a Nosferatu, or she would have known it was a Nosferatu and called it out for what it was. But she specifically mentions it as a vampire. Now, it makes you wonder whether or not, especially because she's Mechan, you can look at it a couple of ways, but she understands that she's encountering another variant feature of vampire itself, which causes her to pause, which is the highlight of this book, because this book is going to go over a couple of things. Primarily, what it's going to cover is what's in a vampire. I think that's one of the better lead-ins to our introduction about what is it that constitutes a vampire. We have many lores that, like, traverse, you know, everyone's mythologies that we've heard before. Everything from our ghouls that do exist. Um, we have the Penaglin, um, which is in there, which is your vampire um, or your demon that's just a floating head with intestines and lungs and everything that departs from the body, goes mm-hmm. to the feast and comes back at another time. Some might even say the Chupacabra would have been a vampire as well for those of us who are very familiar with Puerto Rican like lore and such. So it kind of covers those types of other creatures. And it, it 
validates them by saying that they are in fact vampires and what they are not are kindred. But what's the difference you might ask? Well, what makes it different this time around is they do actually categorize and they recognize that kindred do fall in as being vampires. What makes them stand out amongst our readers or what should make them stand out amongst other types of societies is all these other vampires where they may or may not be localized. The kindred are much more populous. They're a lot more common. They're a lot more organized. Um, they also happen to share the same power or weakness. And because of it, you could call them that one species of quote unquote vampires, right? At one point or another, they might be able to share potents or obfuscate or the equivalents thereafter. Um, but they all are of that species of vampire. And that's why kindred have a specific niche and why they be, seem to be at the forefront of what our readers should normally encounter and or replay. But that's not to say we can't have fun with it because it does present and the book does tell you that there are options to be able to play this but it wants to at least allow you to be able to see it. So this book is actually split into two different parts. Part one is actually going to talk about um, the vampires and their particular lore um, in those particular sections and different ways of looking at vampires and how they relate to the lore overall and how your kindred can mix with them. Um, I think between Mike and I, there was a, there's a good couple of them. If I'm not mistaken, there's like 20, but I think Mike and I chose our favorite two from those. And then secondly, the second part of the book is actually called Consequence. And why this is interesting, especially because it is known as the Wicked Dead book, um, it talks about what happens to vampires that may fall off the side or things that actually would scare vampires. Because vampires have their own book. But prior to getting to that, we did say we have two intro stories that we really liked, and especially because of how they're written. And I guess I know that with this first intro story, um, that painted enough of a picture to me to let me know from an, uh, an audience perspective, reader perspective, what I liked or what I should be getting into. But Mike, you resonated with one more intro story. Be able to tell us about that? Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's another story um, shortly after the first uh, in the text. It's called Tom the Vampire. And it kind of just drops you right into the middle of the action, right? Um, it's very detailed describing uh, this hallway and series of doors and a rundown hotel. Um, and then a, a, a certain character, right, just bursts out of the room like she's in flight, running from something. She's clearly already snapped a pair of handcuffs. Um, she has uh, completely shattered the door, uh, and she's effectively running toward the camera, right, if they're filming anything. Um, and the, mm -hmm. the story immediately describes her flight down the stairs, and it's not at first even clear what she's running from. It's just clearly she's terrified. Shortly after that, the person she's running from becomes more obvious. Um, run-down, smallish curmudgeon of a fella uh, with a really dirty shirt and carrying a, a high-caliber pistol. Um, and this is where it gets a little bit odd. Chases her downstairs. She runs out um, into the street, and he just he just shoots her in public. Very, very graphic description of how the, the bullet does some damage, and you kind of get the impression that she was hurt by whatever she just went through already. Drags her back into the... Um, the motel, right? And there's some exchange between them. And in my mind, you know, it seemed it seemed very much like the story was implying that um, they're both vampires or they're in some kind of competition or this is some kind of long-standing feud. But here's the, the other really strange turn that I kind of held on to. The sun comes up. Right, while he's dragging her back into the motel, and she starts to do what vampires do in sunlight. She's turning into ash. 
but he's not. He's not. Um, now, for other reasons, you know, I'm trying to compress it here, but the 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 description of the, the pursuer very much suggests he's also a person who drinks blood. Um, very much suggests that he's suffered a, a grievous wound um, in the past. Also suggests that his uh, his cancer at some point in his life had advanced so mm-hmm. far that, like, you would think he's on, on his last legs. So I'm thinking he's a, a regular vampire that we've become accustomed to. But he doesn't burn up in the sun. She does. She doesn't make it back to his room. Um, he gathers up, you know, handfuls of her ash. And at, apparently at this point, nobody's even called the police yet. Goes back up to his room. And then the author describes these, these displays that he has in jars in his, in his space, in his living space. Um, I want to spoil exactly what they are, but one of them is a, uh, a, a jar full of like smallish white worms that he feeds this vampire's ashes to. Um, and the story closes kind of on his internal monologue um, about what his actual situation is and what he's trying to find a, a, a cure for because he's got a form of vamp- vampirism that's not the form we're used to and he's prepared to go to the ends of the earth looking for a cure because he justly has reason that it might actually be cured. Right? Now, I know that was a lot, but the reason that story stood out to me is because it seemed more clearly to describe a vampire that is not the vampire that we're used to and give us an idea of what his goals are, what his uh, way of living is, what being the type of vampire that he is has done to his mind. Right? So Tom the Vampire mm-hmm. for me was just perfect, perfect. Right. There's a desperation there, and I think that's what I was able to get from it because he starts to panic, as you were mentioning, when he's trying to bring her from the sun. And uh, she's burning crispy crittered, and he's just like, no, 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 this can't happen. I, I had her for a reason, right? To give a little bit more context with it, he's chasing after her because he acted as bait for this vampire, and she was running away, and he wasn't done with her. He needed to find that solution that you were talking about, either transcend or otherwise. Um, but it points off to another location. He has that inner monologue, as you were mentioning, and it's like, if he can't get his answers from her, which now he can't, because obviously she's Ash, he's going to have to look elsewhere. And this is, I guess, what leads us, as you were mentioning, to the other possibilities of maybe something else might be able to cure his vampirism, accelerate it, or transcend him because he did have a terminal uh, disease that he was needed to recover from in life. So, you know, that being the case, that kind of sets us up for the um, types of vampires that we kind of encountered. As I mentioned, there's about 20 of them. Um, there really are a lot to go through, but we just wanted to focus on about two apiece to kind of give you a flavor of what you'd kind of be encountering with this book. So I guess I'll start off with mine. Um, and the first one I actually chose was a lineage known as the Buta. Now, the Buta are not all that uncommon, just even though they have an interesting name. They're actually ghosts that body hop, right? For those of you who have seen that movie, I think with Denzel Washington, where that serial killer just ends up hopping from body to body, this kind of uh, resembles that, right? You have a ghost that has the ability to body hop. But in order to do so, it it gives you the impression as well that uh, what a ghost has to do in order to survive in this fashion is it has to hollow out the spirit of whoever it wants to possess. Very, very similar to the claim for those of you who are familiar with Werewolf the Forsaken, which essentially means, you know, or like um, uh, a Bane spirit writing for, for those of you that are familiar with uh, Werewolf the Apocalypse. 
um, this spirit, this ghost has to go ahead and subsume the, the spirit or soul of the other person until he's kicked them out so it can make a presence. The problem with it, though, is that as it does so, it buys itself time to exist in this physical world and, of course, get as much of life as possible, but it's too much for the body. Once the soul has originally left the body that it belonged to, the body starts to crumble after a specific amount of time, and the only way to bring it back is the consumption of flesh and blood. It's the only way to help stave off the body starting to rot. To rot. So it's kind of like you're living hungry dead, but really not hungry dead, unliving dead of sorts. Um, <laughs> You know what I'm saying? That's kind of a little yeah, bit yeah. odd, but the, you know, the, the irony of it is the irony. And I think one of the things that I, I took away from this particular bloodline going over it is that it's, it's a shell of a person who's a ghost holding on to things that they normally should have held on to in life. But as we know, with ghosts that are incorporal, uh, they're still going to stick around. This one sticks to life. And in that fashion, they're just pretty much not giving up the shells of their former self to continue with this one thing. And I think what made it unique, or I should say what uh, gave me the, the anaglist type of view, the worldview, is that it speaks about vampires as well, right? Vampires should rightly be dead, or at least let's, let's differentiate them. Our kindred should rightfully be dead. Um, and even having been embraced, what keeps you, what keeps you in your reckoning, right? You're holding on to something for one reason or another. And what makes these ghosts any different? And on top of that, they also do feed on blood for one reason or another, obviously. I should probably say it's most likely because of the fact that they have to keep their bodies corporal um, so they could keep this going. They have to keep this facade going because what ends up happening is if they don't feed the body, they're going to be incorporal again. And most of the time they try getting body snatchers. It's either eat food and leave all these bloody mech victims around or try to find your next victim, take over their body and discard the one that wasn't good. Mike, any thoughts about that one? Um... Yeah, uh, so it, it speaks to a theme, and we're 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 gonna get there. Um, it, it it's a different take on the fact that a, a vampire's hunger is not just, and I, I I really like that feeling. Um, that at least it gives me. Um, it's they've got to take so much more than just somebody's blood or even just somebody's life, right? There's that that sensation of ha. <sighs> I, I'm, 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 my, my vocabulary is failing me, right? But it seems like a higher level. They want, they want something deeper. Maybe the fact that I'm struggling to name it, right, is part of the appeal. Maybe we aren't supposed to know exactly what that thing is that they continue to keep. Eating. It feels like, I don't know, uh, maybe diablery. Um, I dig it. I dig it. Is what I'm mm. saying. <laughs> okay. That's interesting because, you know, you're mentioning the Aubrey and there is this consumption of the soul. And it makes you wonder as we start talking about this. Once again, these vampires are known as vampires. They're just not as common as kindred are. And maybe there are certain things that resonate the same. Once again, they all eat blood. They all have to devour something in order for them to exist. It's not outside of their own possibility, especially because of the way these vampires are presented, that it could be a story hook threat, right, for you to kind of exhume. Why do they get to do the exact same thing? Especially if you have, like, Quarter Drag Cool going, well, if we're talking about the Aubrey. We might not be able to do this continuously with vampires, but we're rather kindred. But we have found this other strain of vampire that performs something similar, and perhaps we'd be able to experiment on them and get something more that way, right? Mm -hmm. So, good observation there. However, what do you got for me in terms of the one you chose? So, the first one I chose um, is, like, legitimately one that I'd like to watch a, the movie of, right? You know, that's 
almost always my criteria for what I like the best. <laughs> mm-hmm. They're called the Baykosh, I think is how it's pronounced. That's how it's spelled phonetically. Um, mm-hmm. And the Baykosh is not, it's not a they, it's an it. It is described um, as a ghost and it attacks survivors. Right? They tell um, several little short vignettes about the Baykosh where maybe it's attacked, um, you know, a, a soldier recently returned from the battlefield, um, somehow entirely unscathed by the conflict. Um, the Baykosh super brutally, you know, dismembers this warrior, um, eats its internal organs, right? Um, this makes a mess of, of this person who has already made it through something that we normal folks would consider super brutal, right? Um, but then they also explain that the Baykosh hunts not just those who we would think of as um, explicitly warriors, right? It may hunt people who are survivors of, of, of domestic abuse or people who grew up in particularly uh, violent neighborhoods but didn't necessarily participate themselves. Um, and that's confusing at first, but they go on to explain that what the Baykosh is really hunting is time. I don't mean that in like a Doctor Who sense. I mean that mm-hmm. in in so much uh, the, the the Baykosh hunts people who feel safe after having made it to the other side of some kind of struggle. What's really going on? Um, you know, so it does its, its brutal thing. It takes their uniforms. It takes their weapons. It takes whatever it can get a hold of that that person had to identify them as, you know, a, a survivor of, of whatever conflict attracted the, the Baykosh to them. Um, and it is so, in fact, drawn to um, that that perception of safety that on the other side of it, it's repelled. By, by danger, right? The entry actually sp- explicitly says you'll never find a Baykosh who attacks a person, um, say, in their tent, right, near a battlefield, or who attacks a cop in a police station, or who who goes into gang-infested territory and tips the scale between two conflicting mm-hmm. groups. It just doesn't do that. It is only drawn right. to... Well, it, it's, it's only drawn to people who seem to have come to the other side of their struggle, but not only made it through, but they feel safe. If you feel safe, where you feel safest is where the, this ghost that by the way, looks just like ghost rider, um, comes to get you. Uh, and so I found that really, really compelling because you normally think of a vampire as, you know, the apex predator in its environment. But the text explicitly says Baykosh doesn't care if you're a vampire, doesn't care. You are a survivor of violence who's foolish enough to think that because a bunch of other people died, you're okay. Baykosh is coming for you. Okay, so you're saying that this Baykosh, this Baykosh is the final destination version of a player hater. That is exactly what the Baykosh is. It is the final destination (laughs) player hater. Uh, and you know, for what it's worth, they, they do make it make sense. They say, they say Baykosh, if it's anything, is the ghost of North American 
violence and atrocity. You know, we've any of us who have history class have visited some of those topics, right? Go back through it. Um, but it is like some kind of spirit of retribution. I, I really dug the. Uh, Does it feed like a vampire? No, 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 no. It's much more messy. Like I said, it, it, the thing that it does all the time is consume the heart and liver of it. Now, okay. It also hunts with extremity, right? Like it's when it uses a weapon, the weapon doesn't have to obey the laws of physics. You know, uh, machetes that tear through brick. Um, but most importantly, when it gets a hold of the victim, whatever other strange brutality always eats the heart. Interesting. I wonder then in terms of like how you, well, that's a good one, right? So we usually see a theme as you were mentioning in terms of it relating to a vampire. How do you see it relating to kindred or like, you know, the kindred lore in general, what we're used to? I think, I think that it is, well, I kind of, I kind of, I think that one of the most common things for way we see injury is that they sit atop the food chain primarily. The reason that they're there is because um okay. and I'm I imagine the Bakosh is something that even Dracula has to check the shadows in his castle for. It is something okay. that you can use to humble uh, a vampire who's got too big for his bitches. <laughs> I could see it. So it's pretty much like the apex predator, pretty much a, a predator's predator. And so there's always one above. Yeah. And it's, again, it's, it's not, it's weird to me to even call it a predator. Cause I, I feel how you feel about it. Right. Apparently it can kill anything. Mm -hmm. That's its primary characteristic. Super killer, murder, death, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it doesn't hunt the best at anything. You get, you get what I'm trying to say about that? They hunt no. whoever feels safe because they think the violence is over. Got it. So it's clinging on to like an idea that something's almost never over. And it's only over when it claims that it's over. Right. Right. Okay. I gotcha. I gotcha. That makes sense. All right. Um, Next one I have lined up for us is the Formose. I literally just chose it off of the name thinking it was going to be nice and cheeky. Not too far off the off the bat. And uh, inconsequentially, it just ended up becoming the one of our intro characters, actually. So the Formose um, had existed for quite some time. They tell you that you might find them hidden somewhere in some deep text, sometimes in PDFs, and you might come across something Latin written that might bring you to such a cold piece to let you know how and or why they exist. Um, they say that they were created during the time of the cult of the Magnamatas under the emperor, if I'm not butchering his name, Elegabalus, mm -hmm. who existed during the Roman times to kind of help supplant a religion at one point or another. And it almost has like this cult of change type of feeling. And what they talk about is this vampire um, after having gone through a ritual, which I think they describe as this gigantic blood orgy where people just keep hacking off limbs from each other, starting with the priestess. She'll start with her breast and then go into her womb, and then everyone just keeps hacking themselves. And even though they should long be dead, right, from the, the physically should just really be dead from the shock that they've incurred on their bodies, this all their body parts just kind of melt 
um, and create this creature that starts off looking as beautiful as you might believe it, or at least as striking looks um, as one would believe for the beauty standard that it holds for itself. And it has a very unique way of feeding. What it feeds on is wants, it feeds on desires, it feeds on despair. But it's masked behind what people believe it is they want or don't want, right? And most of the time, especially because of the best commodity that there is, is self-perception, it feeds off of those who want to look beautiful or feel something of self-worth. And as it feeds off of them, it actually makes its victim look beautiful. Sounds very familiar to us, right? Because now we're talking about things that we've seen in our intro story. Um, what it also describes is where that, for more say, this vampire eventually starts off as looking beautiful by, you know, the, the standards that are kind of written. It doesn't stop thinking it's beautiful, but what it also doesn't stop doing is growing. As it continues to feed, it starts getting big, almost like Masolaris type of big. In fact, some would almost even think that there might be something written there considering where they come from Rome, but they start getting Masolarius big. Masolarius being a bloodline of the Julii at one point and later on in terms, or I should say the original Masolarius was a Julii, and later on becomes a venture bloodline in which the kindred puts on weight, this vampire starts putting on weight. And the reason it's putting on weight is because when it feeds, it's not feeding off of blood or chunks of flesh. It's actually storing um, your despairs and desires, and it's just storing it as inert fat. Almost like a sponge. It literally is just sponging up a lot of it so it could be able to feed and grow off of it. And the funny and ironic part about it is that it doesn't feel that it's not beautiful. If anything, it's more beautiful than it ever was before. It's so full of itself, both figuratively and literally, <laughs> that there are those that just look, for those of you who have ever, or those of you old enough to remember or have seen the movie Slither, remember that one lady who just had all them parasites on the inside and she's so big and she just couldn't move and it's just like the mound of flesh in the head? <laughs> That's how they kind of describe um, Formose, who has kind of probably reached the equivalent of Blood Pope C6 or something, right? It's sped so much that it just wouldn't be able to move. And even though it's unable to move, one of two things ends up happening. It might draw others to it so it can continue to do so and make appealing gestures to others to provide them beauty in return for their pain and misery and or despair. Or it goes without feeding for some time that eventually it'll thin itself out and lose enough weight that it could actually start walking and feeding again. Now, why I thought this was kind of interesting as well from my perspective is even though they feed off of the, you know, the despair of others and make them beautiful, those people that it does feed off of are still hollowed out. There is no sense of reprieve for them. They only want more. You know, feasting once and I look beautiful, this is pretty cool. Feast on me again and I look even better, I should continue to, to keep up the shape. And it's never enough, right? It's never enough for the victim to, to not want to be feed, uh, feasted off of, right? Nor is it ever enough for the Formosi to believe that it's changing its own shape. Whereas it started off, quote unquote, as beautiful and now it has grown into like this big tick, you know, like flooded on, on, on so much pain and misery and despair. It never not looks at itself as anything other than the best of the best in the form of what it is, right? What another thing that it does mention that I thought was pretty cool is that they do embrace or they have their version of embrace. Um, they also compare them very closely to like the Maquette or the Nosferatu in terms of it being a deviant, one would say, or variants of the bloodline. They're like, why wouldn't it be a bloodline? And the reason it kind of mentions it is because of a unique creation factor that came into place. And the fact that it doesn't really feed on, once again, what we described as kindred in the beginning of the book, common threads, you know, feasting on blood, sharing disciplines, etc. No, it, it is able to go ahead and create children. Um, 
But the sad part about it is every children that it does create starts off the exact same way. Beautiful until it gluts up again on, on despair. And it too will feel despair. Anyone that it attempts the blood bond or its equivalent of blood bonding because oh so yummy, me look good after I eat something of yours. I start to feel despair that maybe I'm not worthy enough. Maybe I feel resentful that my dometer or this creature that it's beautiful to me because it gives me what I want is no longer there for me. There's that sense of abandonment. Right? And I think that's where the vampire portion ties into it. There's that sense of never having enough or ever feeling sated that you should. Um, and there's just that level of gluttony that continues. And, you know, hopefully, Mike, that, that gives you an idea about how that intro story kind of weaves in to at least let you know why she felt that way, Lily, and, and this this Golgothan shit beast, as you call it. But I'm sorry to interrupt you were saying. <laughs> well, no, I was just going to ask you, do you, because I, I kind of got this feeling, I guess I just want to know if you agree. Do you think that although all of these vampires are drawn from folklore, for the most part, they are like critiques of the way we normally either role play or I guess encounter vampires in fiction. I probably wouldn't even call it as that because I do think when we also take a look at like a lot of the mythology that we read or creation stories or even parables that are kind of given to us either as kids or whatever, or even like, you know, neighborhood stories, they're all there because there is this trope, right? And the trope has to exist because there's enough people that may have either believed in it or may encounter it at some point. And I think, you know, it's one of, I think it's one of those things that kind of comes in. Like, let's put it to you this way. What if you said, you know what? I could afford to lose a couple pounds. Let me go to the gym. You start going to the gym and you say in the beginning, you're doing it to lose weight. But then you ever hear about those people go like, I originally went to go lose weight, but really I'm doing it because I start feeling good. Right. And you should really do it too. Cause you'd be amazed at how it changes your life. Not to discredit it, but I'm just telling you how the narrative plays itself out. Yeah, and then yeah. I feel really good when I go to the gym. And then afterwards, you know what? I don't have to weightlift as much. But, bro, have you been to CrossFit before? Because CrossFit is everything. And CrossFit to CrossFitting, then we CrossFit for everything. Like, bro, this is in one day. And we could do this. And we could do that, right? And then you start seeing inspirational speeches because you start feeding into it. Or at least yeah. that's the way, yeah. once again, the narrative is being presented. I feel it kind of follows along the same track. Because you could also take a look and see, okay, well, when, when you take a look at Achilles, Achilles was, was godlike, and we know Bob loves Achilles' death, but obviously, you know, that he had one not paying attention enough to the fact that his heel was his, was his actual weakness. You, you lose sight of what's important to you whenever someone gives away that information, and you just never considered that someone would be able to do something. Because you're just full of yourself at that point. Does that make more sense? Yeah, yeah, it, make, it makes perfect sense. Um, and <laughs> to your point about hubris. <laughs> Uh-oh. This next one, so this next one, I'm not sure if it were a film, because, you know, again, that's my favorite lens. If it were a film, I'm not sure it would be a horror, right? Um, I chose the, okay. the, the, the Rossetti uh, apparatus. Um, and this particular vampire, it's not entirely clear whether the vampire is a person or an, uh, a, a, a machine. Or some combination of the two, right? I'll try to crunch this story down. So the main character, when they explain the Rossetti apparatus, because it's kind of done using a story as the framework, um, is this doctor. I want to say his name is like Stephen um, Stephen Farlow, something like that. Is but his name is not that important. What's important is that he is the the son of a doctor, and he's uh, very uh, very very much admires his dad. Um, 
spends his life trying to be like dad. But at some point in his pursuit of the medical profession, he starts collecting these pieces, right, from this guy who lives 100, 200 years before him, but is in the same field. It's prior doctor who was maybe as much an artist or a collector as he was a physician. Well, in this guy's pursuit of, of, of this guy, Rossetti's artifacts, you know, tokens from his life, his writings, whatever, he comes upon the machine that gives this quote-unquote type of vampire its name. Um, mm-hmm. Now, without going into all of the minutiae, because the story gives you the details, basically what this vampire does is it takes two people, one of them is a donor and one of them is the recipient. It takes blood from both of them, but the donor is going to die. And the recipient is going to get blood that has been, quote unquote, purified by the machine. And they're made to feel he- healthy and full and, and ready to go te- attack the world with both hands at first. Goes on to describe that over time, the machine gives diminishing returns. That fullness, that vitality that you killed somebody for by hooking them up to the donor side of the machine doesn't last as long. So you have to do it more and more often. And so on the one hand, you know, the doctor is very much a vampire because he spends his time seeking people who won't be missed, who he thinks are beneath him, who his hubris and callousness and slow loss of humanity have caused him to see as disposable so that he can hook them up to the donor side of the machine and that the machine can give him another hit of that sweet, sweet vitality. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, the machine takes blood from him too. Right? It's, there's something... Like a tithe? Yes, yes. So you hook, again, okay. you hook the two people up to the machine. It takes blood from the donor. And it takes blood from the recipient. Now, it, it plainly tells you that the, the, this machine takes all of the bad, right? The impurities, the negativity out of the recipient, puts them into the donor, and that is why the donor dies. But it doesn't precisely explain what happens to the blood that the machine takes from the recipient. So it is almost like the Rossetti apparatus is, is forcing it's it's operator to tithe some of his or her own essence with every use in exchange for it killing another human being to give them supernatural life. Mm-hmm. So it's taking from you twice, right? It's taking from you one in terms of the, 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 the actual blood that it's for, as far as I can tell the apparatus just consumes. Um, but it's also forcing a more, explicit, more regular, less flexible choice than the kindred had. Right? Because let me make this connection. When you're a regular kindred and they teach you how to hunt, oh, go to the club, dance, shake your tuchus, right? Find somebody who likes you, nibble on their neck a little bit. You know, there's ways to feed and not have to kill people. You're not really a monster. Your situation has just changed. Right? Mm -hmm. The Rossetti apparatus, and the reason why it stood out to me the most is because it forced this doctor to immediately acknowledge, accept, and buy into the fact that you are killing people for as long as you can choose to continue living the way that you are. Okay, I see that. 
You see what I mean? Nice. Um, yeah, no, I got you. I got you. So it was, I don't know. It was, it was really strong to me. Really strong, really strong. Story. It feels like it has a Lovecraftian feel to it, right? Absolutely. Like that reanimator bit. Absolutely. Okay. Because the description, the description of the apparatus is super steampunk. And when the story starts, our main character is like in the 1800s, right? Mm-hmm. He moves forward into the modern day, but you know, Rossetti, the guy who built the machine is from like the 1500s or 1600s. Yeah. Um, so he's been at this for some time. Oh yeah. There's, there's big, big Lovecraft energy in, in, in uh, Rossetti apparatus. I, I like, like the lot. Nice. That actually kind of leads us into our next segment, because as you mentioned, uh, there's a second part to this book, and it actually talks about consequences. And the consequences are pretty much, you know, what are the after effects of either being a vampire or actions that come from the vampire themselves, either by dint of, you know, self-propelled action or action that they take upon themselves, and or um, by association, right? What comes from just the fallout of being a vampire and the things that you may or may not be into? Um, and that kind of leads us to our first aspect of it, which, you know, they speak about um, the Draugr. Mm-hmm. And, Mike, would you be able to prep us up for the Draugr? Yeah, man. So the, the, Draugr, the Draugr are what I would think of as whites. They, uh, they are the textbook, you know, elementary school cautionary tale that the kindred um, give to their children, right? They say, look, got to do right. Gotta be nice to the mortals. Gotta support your community. Because if your humanity starts to slide, you'll become a drug. And you'll be mindless. And everyone in the community will pity you until they cut your head off one night or sit you out in front of the sun because there's nothing left but a ravening beast. But what this intro. Hold on, one second for our audience, though. You mentioned whites. Are whites the exact same? Because for those of us who come from like the masquerade side of it, is it equivalent to it? And if so, what differentiates them about that? It is, it is debatable. It is debatable. So whites, at least my understanding, whites could be one of two types of drawer that the book does get into. They could be independently mm-hmm. a separate state of a, of a, a, a vampire who's utterly lost their humanity and um, is just irrecoverable. Um, okay. Or they might, they might be like an assumption that people have made about what is really a drug. Okay. Because the book, with the drug then. Yeah. The, the, the book describes the mindless beast and the careful predator. Mindless beast is what you normally think of about a vampire who's lost their humanity, right? Naked, sleeping in the sewer or under a bridge somewhere, just attacking anything warm that comes nearby, incapable of language, blah, blah, blah. Um, the kind of guy who you have to go out there with your coterie and cut him down or the masquerade is going to be destroyed in a week. But what the book also says is that when a vampire loses all of their humanity, they don't necessarily get that way because what they descend into is based on what they're like. Right. So depending on the type of person that they are and how they would have hunted, you might get a, a drawer that's a careful predator who can exist at Elysium. And you just think he's mean. maybe, an, maybe elder, Maybe he's a mean young vampire who kind of slid too fast. But because Kendrick gets so numb to depravity, they don't assume that this real messed up character who they see every day is the white that they've been. Um, mm-hmm. 
And the book, it goes through and describes, you know, for each client, they might approach this careful predator state of being in a different way. Um, depending on what your vice is, you will approach this careful predator state of being in a different way. Um, but the whole, the whole takeaway from the entry that I got, you know, tell me what you think, is that we should not assume that the devil is real as a pitchfork and a spindly tail, right? Because sometimes he looks just like to me. That's what the draw draw. Nice. And I, I agree with you there. And the book also talks about something important as well, because you might say to yourself, well, you know, the, actually, you know, thinking about it, there's a line in the book that mentions, well, if you have these careful predators or these beasts whose cunning is that to say, like, they know how to hunt without looking as mindless as they do, they could even talk to you, they look normal to you. And once again, I guess using a serial killer mindset, even though it's not truly one-to-one analogy, um, because obviously it's, it's a whole different breed that we're talking about in the way they operate. We only use it to kind of say that they are other, right? It, it's wearing human flesh. We'll say that. It's wearing, or in this case, it's wearing human vampiric flesh. If we're going to, well, we'll get into that a little bit. But I mean, because I'm trying to figure out how to best describe it here. But it does seem like it is wearing a flesh that other vampires recognize. And I think the equivalent of it, the way that's kind of basis, for those of you who are familiar with Masquerade, we know that those that walk humanity are very different than those that walk on a path, right? One thing that humans also are very well aware of when it comes to droggers are they are not human. They can't fake it. There is no blood coming into it. Even their look, the nervous ticks that a, a beast might have, not a blinking, the tapping of its you know fingers or claws against its thighs, or even clicking sounds that it may or may not make instinctual, or even if it is having certain conversations with you, it's just having certain types of bated breath. You know, it even talks about that when droggers do exist, or even when they speak, because they're not taking as deep breaths as human normally would to protect their voice come back so because they don't have to exert the voice right but to pair that up and i thought what was interesting in this was they talk about kindred going well why would we ever want to get rid of them? or what excuse do we have to get rid of them? we could come up with an excuse for a mindless once whoa, whoa, whoa they're breaking the masquerade they gotta go right that, that's for that's even on, on vampires or kindred i should say that have high minds and low minds as well, but obviously the low minds are doing what they're doing, making messes everywhere. They got to go. But what do we do about the drogger that we find out aren't as messy as the mindless ones? And the beautiful line they put in there is because of fear. The fear is, I don't want to become like that, right? Mm -hmm. Even if that yeah. drogger does happen to have a cunning beast and it does seem like it's able to hold a conversation. You don't want to become that really creepy serial killer who's sitting at the end of the room that no one wants to mess around. And so most of the time, if they're fortunate, you might get a coterie or you might get a group or you might even get the prince to kind of just say a subtle, listen, Sheriff, this guy's got to go. Whoever you got to deputize, get them out of my domain or make them gone. Because in the end, even kindred know this is not what they want to be. And I think that's a very impactful line to say because without it, there really is no good argument as to why you would ever remove a drogger of that level of cunning from your domain. Right? I think it also gives a one example. Um, there's there's this one case study that they speak about for um, Pride, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, the character's name is Nettles. And I first encountered Nettles in, I'm not sure if it was Secrets of the Covenant or if it was one of the mythology books, but it speaks about vampires coming to see Nettles. And Nettles exists like inside of this water tower or sorts. But when they go see her, it's this ancient 
let's backtrack. Maybe it's not so ancient, but it's this powerful um, Gangrel, and it once was an acolyte, and Endor still is a circle of right? But it is a complete trogger. It had fallen so far in humanity that at one point or another, another kindred had caused her feasting on someone else, and uh, because it was still hungry, it turned on her, diabolized her, and that was the last strike. That's mm-hmm. when the, the humanity wrote it from, from Nettles, and Nettles just became this creature. What's interesting is that Draugr's can't use magic. But I think that's also because it's a little bit self-explanatory, right? Because they are beast, um, they don't have the careful mindset to be able to summon uh, certain things like Kruak or demon sorcery or even the coils of, you know, that are uh, developed by the Order of Dracul because it's all beast summon. And so what does she do? Because she's a careful predator of pride, she uses an excuse that she doesn't teach Kruak to any of her lessers because they're not ready or willing or able to be taught by her level magnitude, you know, level of existing. Mm-hmm. Um, but that just goes to give you an idea of what Draugr that does exist in a domain that no one's going to get rid of. And why would you, right? I mean, we, we kind of gave it away. You don't because it's that much of a greater beast. And in this case, how would you ever know unless you were that close to it? Um, most, most people who get that close aren't going to make it. <laughs> right? Nah, you're right. You're right. Um, I, but that, that's, that's Draugr's for you folks. Uh, another one it talks about here in this book is the larvae. Um, what are the larvae? Interesting name for it, right? Larvae apparently, and I guess quite blatantly, are botched embraces. If you ever thought about vampires, you're taking a look at vampires that only half made, right? I guess um, near dark would kind of be close to what a larvae would be, except that the person actually was still somewhat human in it. But mm-hmm. it's a it's a vampire who's in the process of not being fully made. The book describes these vampires as either being created probably right after a frenzy, after guilt. Um, popular creators of these quote-unquote larvae, these half-vampires who haven't committed to full beings, are also a drogger because they're also full of the beast. Because they're not putting the effort to willingly create a vampire. It's an afterthought. Once again, from the perspective of guilt, I didn't mean to kill my my girlfriend or my boyfriend or my significant other or what have you. I need to bring them back, right? And it's panic that, that makes you go and try to bring them back. It wasn't a willful thought. Um, that's what. Or maybe you kill the store owner, but man, you got to really run from the cops because they're going to be here. Maybe if I just pour some blood in their throat, they should be all right. If everything works out, and I, I guess what my sire told me, or at least I've heard other licks tell me this is what should work, this person should rise up, they should be good. Um, those are the types of stories you get. But what are really larvae? They are, once again, half-created creatures that are more run by beast than they are by the man inside. So much so that they can't even claim a clan. Um, they have a blood potency in this book described as zero because their bodies do heal. But if they ever do get staked, it's game over for them. They're not, and the book stresses, they are not considered true vampires. So why would you even exist, right? And um, the question is pretty straightforward. In the same fashion that you know that you might make a mistake creating these larvae and they kind of would be around, some vampires willingly create these larvae just because they're good packouts. Why do I need to have animalism and three Dobermen when I could have three mindless, crazy, like, roughshod larvae that would be around and be able to do my bidding? They'll feast, they'll eat, they'll attack my enemies, and I could always create more because it's not that much of an investment. So, so would you agree that? What do you think of that? I was, my bad, I didn't mean to interrupt you. (laughs) Would you? No, you could, you could. Would would you agree? Would you agree that Draugr are more so than the kindred are like more victim than they are predator not draw i said draugr i meant larva i'm sorry um okay 
because it, to me, it feels like, you know, from the description, they are people who are like in the, the wake of, of a kindred's hubris. Like they're collateral damage for the schemes mm-hmm. of somebody who got the curse of being a full vampire. Does that make sense? No, you're right. It is. It's just, it's a, it's victim by happenstance, right? Because it's also irresponsible. It's kind of like when you want a puppy and you're like, oh, puppy's cool. Let me go ahead and buy the puppy. And you're like, oh man, this puppy's growing real quick. And I really didn't think it was going to pee and poop all over the place. Got to get rid of it. Oh, there it goes. Right. <laughs> um, the book, this is actually a prototype because we know this is the first introduction of the larvae as it is, because we do, they do talk about the larvae, AKA revenants as well. In the second edition of Reckon, but this is when we first start seeing it where it tells you that you could have discarded creatures that do exist at night, right? These revenants that do wake up that are not full vampires. And it goes to show in a devious and clever fashion that full vampire is of man and beast. And it's very cognizant of what it can or can't do. And every choice that it makes is its own to be able to do so. You know, but what about the Draugr? But the Draugr was once man who chose to be beast. At least it was given the option to do so. And eventually it slipped down because it couldn't hold on or it willingly embraced it. Right. Most of the time we probably see that from Belial's brood who try to, you know, ride the line to see if they could transcend something more. But these these larvae don't get that chance, like you were mentioning, right? They well, they don't get that chance initially, because one of the things this book does mention is there is a ability to elevate from just the larvae. And it mentions two passions. One, adoption from a sire. What does that mean? There could be it's very weird to look at it this way, but much in the same way, if you could a Kata, you know, one of the clanless in, in Masquerade, and you could bring them into a clan, this is kind of the equivalent of it. You have this half vampire who exists, who's not really true yet, and you have a, a would be sire who says, I will invest my blood, and I will make him one of mine. They would then give blood to this larvae and invest the willpower to create it, right? To give it a name, to bring it up, and to elevate it. And the thought process behind it is by being able to do so, you purify. I'll probably reword that a little bit. <laughs> you give the man a reason to come to the forefront and not remain the beast. Give it the opportunity to do what it has to do, and therefore making it a true man. Um, the other opportunity has to elevate itself, Diablerine. That's- it's not that a larvae would go to Diablerize, because larvae, once again, being the beast that it is, it's like, okay, well, I'm feeding, it's, it's done moving, well, I guess I should look for something else. But larvae are very good at taking commands, and if someone were to command it and were instructed on how to be able to Diablerize, Sucking in the soul of another and raising the potency of blood and giving it the ability to be something more than what it is. Not saying it'll succeed, you know, depending on whether or not the other soul is stronger than it. But if it can make itself through, it brings the quote unquote man to the fore and it would afford that larvae the ability to become a true vampire. Yeah, it's interesting that being power hungry is something I grab a hold of to pull itself up out of a pit, right? <laughs> right. Think about that. Right. <laughs> Uh, What's that say about humans? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, that's the whole point of this game, right? To be able to kind of review and look over the things that we do through these figurative narrative, uh, you know, these these figureheads to kind of work ourselves through. But we have another one to go through, and that's Strix. Mike, hit us with the Strix. Uh, so you, all the Requiem fans are already familiar with the Strix. Uh, the Strix are... Hmm... It's really hard to say what they are in a definitive way. Um, we'll do it like this. They are, uh, this is another part of the book that's framed in terms of a story. Um, and there's a description of one of the founders, right? Founders in, in the sense of very early, you know, Roman age or before vampire. 
um, right. who has gone out into the forest seeking some level of absolution or solution or whatever you want to say he thought he was going to find out there. Those trips longer than he expects to be. He can't feed. He's got to sleep in the earth. Uh, you know, he gets cut up by the brambles, even though he should have uh, fortitude and other vampiric traits that make him hardy. And so by the time he actually gets to where he thought he was going, question mark, um, he is so uh, at a loss for blood that some of the some of his own blood falls from his mouth, like from where he's bit his lip or something, hits the earth, and he bends over and he tries to eat the soil to get the blood back into the system, right? Now, watching this mm-hmm. are obviously some of the tricks. They make a bargain. They invade his body so he'll survive. Um, it's not explicit what his end of the bargain is, but the book does tell us that he fails his bargain with the Strix by... I'll pause you there for one second. Go ahead. The bargain ahead. was, do not... Uh, the one line that they say is, do not disappoint us. Yeah, but that, that, that doesn't feel vague to you. I don't feel like they're trying to, you know... Get oh, no, I'm not saying no. Them. I'm just letting you... I'm just telling you what it says. It says, do not disappoint us. Continue. My apologies. Um, well, to, to your point, it does say do not disappoint us. And what's strongly implied, if not explicitly stated, is that the attempt to hold on to humanity is disappointing to the Strix. Um, the Strix, it goes on to tell us that in some senses, the, the Strix view themselves as the forerunners or maybe the natural state of the vampiric beast. And so as one vampire embraces another, the essence of one of those original Strix, or at least whatever version of the Strix was riding in that vampire's lineage is passed on to the next creature. Um, But as we all know, the beast doesn't like to be restrained. And so it's heavily implied that the Strix are antagonists to vampires because vampires promised them some level of inhumanity lifestyle. And instead the whole race chose to try to walk the line between man and beast. And the Strix just want them to be, be the beast. Um, big obtain abyss energy for, for the masquerade fans out there. I, I, I'm <laughs> seriously, cause they're described as like these spectral shadow bird things that, you know, they have this hunger that's endless and they compel, you know, vampires to do all of this foul stuff. And so it's, it's, it's very, I don't know. I, I, I previously have said more than once. I don't like the Strix. I understand them better now with the associations that are made. Okay. So, you know, I, I, and the reason why I said in exactly that do not disappoint us is because the Strix the Strix do get upset, right? And we know from Requiem from Rome that they take it on the Julii first. Yeah. Because the Julii act as what they weren't before. They try giving order to what shouldn't have any order. The, the nature of the beast, these forerunners of the beast, or their natural state of existence is not what Julia had set themselves up for. And so they were the first ones marked for death, so to speak. The book does mention, uh, this book rather, I shouldn't say, because Requiem from Rome. But this book does mention that eventually, after they got rid of the Julii, they went dormant for a while. They were gone, but they were dormant. And that only more recently in modern nights, whatever rules were in place, right? Because everything does chaotic as it might be, something always follows a rule pattern. There are laws to certain things. 
had snapped. Those rules are no longer in place and the strict start coming back out into this world. They start becoming more populous. It also kind of gives hints as well that it's after the Ventrue. One would almost think that the reason why it's also after the Ventrue could be twofold. At this moment in time, you could say because the Ventrue may or may not be associated and or lineage of the Julii. That one's up. I'm not going to throw the gauntlet one way or another. We know how folks feel about that. But we can at least say from a perspective of the Ventrue having this order and power and this facade of order and power from at least what we as the readers and from the perspective of characters, human perspective, is not what Strix like at all. You know, I, I think the reason why they are in this portion of consequences is because it acts as a juxtaposition to the fact that there are apex predators and vampires should be acting as those apex predators. They, the, the Strix do crazy things in, or silly things, depending on how you take a look at it, because they don't like what you're doing. Um, they'll come and they'll mess around with you just to make a mockery of what you are. What, what will they do? They'll probably kill those loved ones to you and they'll inhabit their bodies. And the Strix love inhabiting bodies because they never had bodies before or don't know what it feels like for the most part. So when they get inside of it, they'll do everything to it. They'll cut themselves. They'll sew themselves back up. They'll feast a little bit until they starve themselves or glut themselves just to be able to live on the sensation. And you might ask yourself why, but that's because you, the human and or you, the vampire who's echoing human emotions or human structures are going, why would it do this? Just because the Strix can. And even more so than that, it knows that if it could cause you pain or a reason to recoil, it'll always choose your loved ones to come back. It'll inhabit old, you know, bones are coming alive <laughs> and that's my dead grandfather and he's still coming after me. But the Strix also recognize another thing as well, where humans might rot, vampires don't. So anytime it's better for them to write a vampire, you better believe they will. And they'll probably go after your best friends as well and start writing their bodies and just wreck shop just to see institutions go to the ground. Once again, this book is very vague, I think, in terms of how Strix are presented. But I think that's purposeful, right? Because sometimes you don't want to give your main antagonist anything that makes them that much of an easy, an easy read. Right, that should be scary for any vampire who comes across this creature. You know, I think one of the better things that we read in Requiem for Rome, um, and or the fall of Camarilla was a character who was coming after one of the emperors, the emperor's son. Right, one way or another, we know the emperor's son should die. Andor got assassinated, but in the story that we read, the Strix is just completely following and making a mockery the entire way and playing with its food. Um, once again, it's just because the Strix kind of can. So that's you know that kind of summates the Strix for now. Um, because we do see them again, once again, in Requiem 2nd Edition. But here they define it a little bit more. And the authors even let us know, yes, we've seen it in Requiem for Rome. And there's a couple of things that were different in that book versus what you'll see in this book. But that's also because they've had time to develop and or deviate from where they started in that book to where they currently are now in, quote unquote, the modern nights. Um, I think the last one that we'll cover very quickly, too, as we're, as we're coming to a close here, are the Dampier. Um, <laughs> I will even tell you, this one kind of threw me in for a little bit of a loop. Now, hear me out. We know the Draugr is the consequence of you slipping away from humanity and embracing the beast and where the beast embracing you. We know the larvae are these misbegotten victims of vampires, so to speak, to kind of create. And just by association and or because of it's an afterthought, we have these wretches. And we have the Strix, who are the boogeymen of boogeymen, to so let us know that we are not the beast, right? You know, beast we become, that's beast we, we are. Um, I'm sorry if I, I butchered that statement, but it's kind of in that sense that these Strix act in a specific way that is totally alien to be. Dampier are actual willful creations by their makers, right? Whether it's a male vampire or female vampire and a male um, 
you know, father or mother, depending on how you take a look at it, these things are occult creations, right? This book tells you anyone can carry this baby to turn male or female. It don't matter. It's going to be more painful for the male um, for different reasons. But anything could carry this one being into turn. And by doing so, they bring a Dampir into existence. Now, what's weird about the Dampir, let me take that back. I probably shouldn't call it weird as much as it is. What's fascinating about the Dampir is they write them as being these vehicles or vessels for vengeance. And when I first read that, I was like, wait a second, but why? Why would you write something like that? Why would someone willingly just create these entities to, quote-unquote, be vehicles of vengeance? And as you read on, what ends up happening is the following. One, Dampir do age slowly, and or they do have a literal blood potency as well. well okay, we kind of get that, you know. So far, kind of like larvae, but not because they don't have to worry about the beasts in the form that the larvae do. They're, they seem like they're normal. But their blood is poisonous to their parent clan. Whatever clan had originally sired them, any vampires, or I should say kindred feasting from them, um, it would be considered poisoning to them, and it would debilitate. That's weird. However, to any other kindred who isn't of the parent clan, it's alluring. But it's kind of like cotton candy to them. Why? Because they could feast off of this vampire if they wanted to, this dampier, and it'd be nice and tasty. But the blood would kind of be inert. So it's kind of like you're trying to chew on something substantial, but it ain't got substance, but it does taste also tasty. And so it draws attention to the Dampir that no matter how you look at it, this Dampir is always going to be the focus of another predator's life. Whether it be of the parent clan that might stumble across them, we need to find out this thing has got to die because it tastes horrible and it's actually hurting me, which means it hurts other vampires. Or because it's now drawing attention by the fact that other vampires are coming after it. Right? So what is the purpose of your creation if not pain? And I think, I don't know if there's a, something kind of to underline it, but it almost seems like this would be your version of an abomination to say they really shouldn't exist. Someone brought it into being, but it almost feels like this is the manifestation for those of you who like read uh, Masquerade when things like you really shouldn't create more of yourselves and King created more anyway, only to be disappointed by what comes out. I think in this case, the creation of Dampir is to say this really shouldn't have happened in the first place. And because of it, the world will suffer for it. Right? Yeah. Or the equivalent of like a medicine. You shouldn't put two unholy things together and think you're going to get away from it because you are undeath and you're trying to bring life into it. And what came out of you was just that unholy. I don't know. I mean, how how do you take that description of the damn peer on your end, right? Ah, shit. No notes. No notes. You've spoken my heart. Um, the sweet, sweet flavor of tragedy and vampires with this is. <laughs> um, right. You know, I feel like there should be a Blade comment here somewhere. <laughs> Maybe a Morbius joke, right? Morbin time, something or other. But no, no, man, we're on the <laughs> same page. We're on the same page. That's, that's good stuff. I agree. Um, this book does give you the ability to play a Dampir. It lets you know how to go ahead and create one. But once again, it's one of those types of games where you're creating a Dampir. Your shift of how to play Vampire, you're playing it from different lens, right? Because now you are the sweet, sweet, juicy thing that everyone's after. But once they do get to feast upon you and or if someone does get to, you know, have some of your blood, it's not peaches and cream at that point, right? It is pain. Your existence is pain. Why weren't you created as an actual vampire? Why did your parents damn you into this? Where are your parents if at all into it? So it's a different type of game, but it goes to show you that, once again, consequences do exist, uh, especially from a vampiric side. But I think. That kind of wraps it up for us um, regarding this book. Mike, any closing thoughts? Um, 
Yes. You might disagree. But after having read what I read, I would prefer that this book was for storytellers only. I think its impact Okay. I think its impact is, is gonna be best felt at the table. If at least at least you and your group leave it for storytellers only until you've dealt with some of what it has. Right? And if people grab on to what you what you included in your game, then you you hold it back. You give them a little more. You hold it back and then you give it a little bit, a little bit more till you work your way through the book. At the point that people aren't interested in what's going on in the book, you can share where it came from. But this, I feel like, is one of those things you want to keep in your back pocket just to keep it mixed up and interesting for some people you play with all the time. Okay. Okay. I actually see that as well because, um, to be honest, when I first read this Night Horrors book, by comparison to the one that I read before, which is Immortal Sinners, Immortal Sinners talked about those big bad vampires that we know in canon. But then it kind of gave us an idea of how you would present them in, kind of like you would any other vampire template or any character template that you would have read in any other vampire book, like Children of the Night from Masquerade or otherwise, where you could introduce these features into it. This is no different, folks, outside of the fact that it doesn't give you every one of these bloodlines or these different types of vampire variations just give you one character to give you a sample creation of how you would introduce them. But it does exactly what it does for a Night Horrors book, and for any Requiem book for that matter, which is it presents you a toolbox of items you could bring into your game. Right? So in this toolbox we're talking about what if a vampire or a kindred were to uncover another vampire? Would it consider it kin? Would it consider it other? Does it consider it predator? What solidifies a kindred from probably encountering going like, wait a second. I'm an apex predator. You're you're the bootleg version. You're the you're the AliExpress. You're the wish version of a vampire. <laughs> I'm the real thing over here, right? Or does it recognize I am not the strongest, and or does it share the space with these other creatures, right? Um, I think that's what the book's. It's it's definitely worth the read. I would definitely say, if only because those of you storytellers who want to give another spit on your vampires could be able to do so. It does cover uh, Filipino vampires. It covers you know once again those that come from. Um, Malaysia, Thailand, in terms of Penaglin, for those that come from Southeast Asia, it comes with ghouls we talked about, um, other aspects of it that you might want to bring in. I also do agree with Mike, I like the storyteller aspect more because you can play around with it, but nothing stops you, folks. It's your book. Do with it as you wish. But that being the case, um, that kind of wraps it up for us. We do thank you once again for listening to, uh, to our podcast here. Um, we are greatly awaiting the birth of the Chosen One as Bob is waiting <laughs> and, and his... Uh, Lovely wife Moa is very, very close uh, to the spawning date, and we'll get our Bob back, but we do appreciate you sticking with us. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, once again, share it with us via Discord and or Facebook or anywhere that you'd be able to send us a message. We greatly appreciate your feedback, and let us know which one of these, or those of you who have read the book, uh, would be interested in watching it played out. Once again, this is DJ. Well, Mike. Yeah. Peace out. Thank you for listening to our 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast. If you like what you heard and want to support us, please share it with others or leave a review. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.